Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to our humble little podcast. My name is Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space, and today we are going to be talking about Buckaroo Banzai. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, he, I, when I was when I was listening to my <laughs> guests today, only the older people are going to know what I'm talking about here now because D neither Dustin nor Stephen knew what I was talking about. But I, my guest today is Stephen Swancoat. He is a doctor, more specifically, he's an OBGYN. He's also an artist. He's a filmmaker and he's an astrophotographer, and he is here today to talk with us about all the things that he's working on. He's really an amazing, uh, an amazing personality. He's got a lot going on, and I'm excited to learn mostly about this documentary that he's making with OPT on astrophotography. So that's going to be a big part of our conversation today. We're also going to be talking about some of the efforts they're doing by going to big cities, setting up telescopes, and imaging directly in the middle of the most light-polluted areas on the planet Earth. So, uh, But before I get started, let me introduce my co-host dustin gibson from opt telescopes are you there dustin hey tony uh another one man we're having fun with these things i know you didn't know who buckaroo bonsai was did you no i, I mean i was born in 85 and you said that was an early 80s thing right yes yeah, yeah, it was about early to mid 80s but anyway yeah. yeah if you don't know what to talk about folks go look it up and uh, that's what they did and they immediately saw what i was talking about so. yeah well steven even <laughs> looks like this guy you're talking about what what's uh, <laughs> you know what's funny though is that um ian here he's been on a podcast as well from marketing he says that you know if steven didn't have to sleep he would take over the world <laughs> because this this guy never stops man ever you know he was uh he was my partner in crime there in New York City when we went and brought all the telescopes and planned this uh this kind of uh you know just pop-up event in Times Square and so we can talk about that a little bit but we always have fun when Steven's around and definitely get a lot done this guy never stops so Steven well, welcome I, yes welcome well thank you for having me I have to say, this is my first ever podcast, so I'm very excited. Is it? Yep, wow. first ever. In the art world, I'm surprised that's the case. You know, I'm surprised you're not getting asked for podcasts all the time. In art, it seems to be a pretty big thing, huh? Yeah, I've done um, a couple interviews here and there, but nothing like uh, this before. So um, <clears throat> I'm excited, and it's uh, kind of also a good time to chit-chat about what we've done in uh, Times Square and bring back some old good memories and whatnot. Great. Well, where are you based? Are you based out of New York or L.A. or somewhere in between? Where are you based from? Out. So currently I live in um, in Manhattan, New York, um, okay. specifically Tribeca. Um, I was born in California, actually. I was born in uh, Santa Monica and lived in San Diego up to about second grade. Moved to Michigan. My mom's side of the family is from outside Detroit and um, grew up there, went to Michigan State. And then my big dream was to go to medical school and then to move back to California and about as a going into my second year of medical school, I learned about New York, which sounds kind of dumb, but I never really kind of thought of New York City. I went there and I was like, you know what, this is where I want to go. And <clears throat> what basically moved out there as a third year student for one year, my big dream. And uh, I've actually been there ever since. So about eight years now in New York. 
so I, one of the things that I should just tell you guys listening that ever since I met Dustin a few months ago, I have been following him on Instagram and basically all of his social media, but mostly Instagram. And it's just like live, I'm living vicariously through this guy. He he's always busy. He's always uh, do, taking great images of the night sky. And right now they're, they're busy working on this documentary with Steven Swancoat. And so I had, it, it's it's been really fun to sit there and watch and see the pictures of all the stuff that you guys are doing. Who wants to tell us, either Dustin or Stephen, a little bit about the documentary that you're making? Well, this one's your film, Stephen. So, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure that you wanted to make a film or you need an excuse to come to Southern California. But why don't you talk about it? So <clears throat> um, I had a um, I got into astrophotography a couple of years ago, and um, it was like Dustin and Jenny here, like a life-changing event for me. Um, and so the idea of making a documentary on the subject had kind of been something I'd thought about, but something I maybe way later on before even considering being a filmmaker. About a year ago, I got inspired and wrote and shot my first short film. It's a 15-minute fictional film. And um, that's been now in the festival route and about a year and and coming to an end. It's been about 20 festivals. And so as for my next project, um, I thought I want to do, I don't want to do any more short films. I want to do something that is a feature length and um, the opportunity to do something on astrophotography kind of sparked my interest. Um, but it's something I'd kind of toyed with a little bit because, you know, when you jump into a project, you can't, you can't dabble in a film. You have to either go all in or not at all. <clears throat> And so for a while, I kind of thought about it, thought about it, and then basically made the decision, you know what, this is a perfect time to do it because um, as a doctor, what I actually do is I travel. So I, I travel to small towns and work about two weeks a month in hospitals that don't have enough doctors. Um, but it gives me a flexibility in being able to pick my schedule and whatnot. And so with narrative filmmaking, you have to have basically a big chunk of time, you know, like uh, four to six weeks or more devoted, but with the documentary, you can shoot it over a period of time. And so I picked, I said, this was the best time right now. Um, also, you know, I'm still learning the basics of filmmaking, getting my feet wet, you know, nothing makes up for experience. And so this gave me the opportunity to be able to, you know, piece together a film that I could go around and, and meet different astrophotographers and tell their various stories and also do it over a year. And I'll let the same time kind of basically work to pay for the film. And so the whole decision to really jump in big was made probably around two months ago. It was a little bit scary because one is that I'm also putting myself out there and asking a lot of people, Dustin, Ginny, OPT, and a bunch of other astrophotographers around the world to, hey, can I come out there? Can I meet you? Can I interview you? Do you want to be in a film? And, um, you know, and for them to invest and believe in me and then for me to kind of, you know, have to perform. And so I kind of went back and forth because, you know, at the same time, I don't want to go out there and let anybody down. But, you know, like I said, two months ago, I said, you know what, I'm going for it. I'm going all in. And um, I'm, it's been so far an exciting progress. Astro, um, how many astrophotographers are you going to feature? So I've reached out and have probably around between 20 or 30 different astrophotographers all around the world that I've reached out to. However, in making a documentary, you can only have so many subjects that you can cover because if it's an hour and a half, even if you do 10 minutes a person, 
it's that's you're already way over time and it's too confusing for the audience. So as far as core stories, I have about four to six. Um, however, as far as included docu- um, astrophotographers, I'll probably want to include about 10 to 20. What criterion are you using for picking them? I mean, you said, you know, you've got about 20 or 30 around the world that you've reached out to. What do you look for in a subject to ask to be a part of your documentary? Do they need to have, for example, really big expensive equipment or do they just have to be, you know, some sort of reputation online? What kind of criterion did you use? So it's actually a very good question because in all theory, there's actually other than taking photos of deep space through a telescope, really none. I wouldn't even say deep space because of planetary or lunar imaging. And even some of the astrophotographers um, that I'm going to be interviewing do the wide field Milky Way. But for the most part, people who just image the night sky through a telescope. But at the same time, I did not only want to focus on the cream of the crop, the best of the best, because that's unrealistic to people who want to maybe get inspired and say, oh, of course, these people can take these great photos. Look, they have these gorgeous telescopes, these remote observatories. They've been in it for many years. You know, I don't know anything. I've only just looked in a telescope once back in, you know, elementary school or at a sidewalk event, you know, and so I want the film first and foremost to inspire people to take a look up and take a look up through a telescope. And then from there, it can take any path it does with that person. And that's the main kind of goal of the film. And OPT is figuring somewhat prominently in this, I understand. So, uh, Dustin, what are the kinds of things you're doing with with Stephen? Well, I think that we we kind of ended up there for a couple different reasons. One, uh, Stephen and I have become close friends over the past few years. Um, you know, Stephen is also an astrophotographer. I don't even know if we've brought that up yet, but is also um, – an astrophotographer and does big prints. I've seen some some really beautiful prints actually of the moon and things like that. But um, you know, at, not just from being friends, but also from you know the the side of this that in a documentary right now, a lot of the the bigger things that are happening industry wide are coming out of this building. I mean, you know, we've got uh, our own satellite going up in 2020. We've got um, you know observatory project going up around the world where it's giving away time for free and then a light pollution filter for the first time ever shooting from you know um any city in the world which was Times square was kind of the proof of concept for that and steven's been involved each step of the way so he's known about each of those things happening so it made a lot of sense that when there was going to be a documentary about you know innovations or changes in the industry that opt kind of had to at least have some some foothold there had to be part of it. Um, but you know, more than anything else, we just have a lot of fun when, <laughs> yeah, total, a lot of fun. Yeah. We always, have a lot of fun. that's always, yeah, yeah. that's always gotta be a part of it, doesn't it? Yeah. And each one of those products indi- or, uh, projects individually, I would say that's what they've all been about. It's not like any one of them has been about like, Oh, well we have to do this to increase, you know, profits or, or any of that. It's just, Hey, this stuff is, it should exist. And, there are a lot of astrophotographers. There are a lot of people that are just space enthusiasts that want it to exist. And so, you know, people like Stephen, people like a lot of the people in this building are just go-getters and just want those things to be a reality and won't stop working until they are. And so we like partnering with people with this much energy and this kind of drive. And 
you know, Stephen fits it right in. I mean, with with that community and those types of people. And I want to I want to talk about a few of these things. Real of course, quick. If absolutely. We could, if we could go back for just a second, Tony, let's talk about some of the things that are that are actually happening, because I feel like it's a big deal that you are a doctor for one thing. Right. I mean, you don't see many doctors that have the time to do the kind of things that you're doing. But for you, it was never even really a consideration of letting that time not exist. Your creative process is kind of prioritized in your life. Right. Yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Basically, it, it I'd have to say like the if you want to go all the way back to the starting point um, of kind of this is even before astrophotography of where whatever kind of my passion just took over. Um, I was actually a sophomore in high school and um, I had gotten the best GPA at that time, a 3.4, but it wasn't apparently good enough for my dad. And he grounded me from TV and internet and going out with my friends. And so I said, well, I said, if I'm going to be grounded, I can't do this fun stuff. I'd actually just seen this show on TV called BattleBots, Fighting Robots. And, I remember um, that show. <laughs> yeah, this was like, yeah. and actually, it was, I, it was basically the last season before the show was canceled, and then they kind of just brought it back recently. However, so I proposed this idea to my dad: Hey, can I have a little bit of money, and I'll, you know, I want to build this battle bot because there's a couple of still amateur competitions. And long story short, I end up spending hundreds of hours down in like the basement designing wooden prototypes, building them out of aluminum and steel, welding it, doing all the things myself. And that basically was a turning point where like, I realized that if I had a passion or an idea that just to run with it, and the same thing happened with um, astrophotography um, from when I got my first scope. Um, it was in, um, I just met my girlfriend and we just moved in together after two months. And we have a, we're on the sixth floor and have an outdoor terrace. And I got up there and I looked up one day and, you know, in New York, no one even thinks you can even see stars. But the truth is, is that there's a lot of clear nights. And once you're above the um, the, the streetlights, you can see a, a, a decent amount, nothing like you can here. And uh, I end up getting a scope. And the scope basically went from looking into it and became obsession to who are these people that take photos. And then I tried doing it and got instantly hooked. And it just became something that like I'd be up to 2.30 in the morning doing it, knowing that I have to go to bed and get back up at 4.30 to go to the hospital to make rounds at 6 a.m. And so it's been, um, <laughs> yeah. and it's been a very kind of crazy process. And actually, if you let me even backtrack, um, so when I moved to New York as a third year medical student, my father came out and um, he got me inspired to do art. And I told him I never painted and I can't draw. So I started with photography. And then he inspired me to go watch this street art documentary that literally called Exit to the Gift Shop. It's um, like the Banksy movie or with Mr. Brainwash. And I remember I walked out of the theater that night and thought to myself, well, if Mr. Brainwash can paint, I said, I can paint. And um, I started painting and I totally sucked at the beginning. Like, I mean, I had no idea what I was doing and I watched some YouTube videos and obviously I'm not trained. I'm a third year medical student picking up the paintbrush for the first time. And just like astrophotography became obsession, same with painting and, you know, like, when you're so passionate about something, it, it you make time for it. And I've always told people that, you know, they always ask me, how do you, how do you find the time? How do you do this? And I go, well, time is the one thing that we all share. It doesn't matter how rich you are or wealthy or powerful. There's only 24 hours in a day and we all have that. We can't buy any more. You can't buy any less. And it's what you do with them. And so painting came and like, I would come home from the hospital and, 
you know, uh, start hit, you know, get hit the canvas, stay up late. I wouldn't go out on the Friday or Saturday night with my friends. I'd be painting and kind of the same thing with the astrophotography. And, um, it's kind of sucked me in these different worlds and introduced me to a lot of people and, um, and transitioning into the film, I wanted to take that passion and what it's done for me and to go and capture other people's passions and hope that translating this into a film will inspire people to go out and to look up just the same way that I became inspired to paint. And that led me down this whole road, all from watching a, a documentary. What sort and, of things when you were painting, did you paint? So my paintings were, um, I did like a lot of um, kind of pop art, kind of, you could say a mix between kind of Andy Warhol style, along with some of the abstract expressionists like Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko. Um, because I can't actually free draw that well with the brush, I do a lot of stencil work, which is where you kind of either create an image or draw an image on paper, and then you cut it out with the razor, and then you paint it place the um the stencil down paint it and remove it and um i mean i would say that now i've probably made five six hundred paintings and you know you like anything you know you start off and no one starts off at anything great you have to put your time and you know practice and you do it for a while then every once in a while you kind of surprise yourself and it keeps you going and that's kind of how the process you know keeps growing and so i want to get into the astrophotography <clears throat> component of that but um when you describe that, it says on your website, this is pop neoism. That's the classification for that type of painting? Yeah. So pop neoism is actually a term that me and my kind of collaborative partner and, and neighbor at the time, Trip Derek Barnes, came up with. Um, and he was a, he moved in next door to me and um, he had actually went to art school and, but kind of got out of painting and um, actually was into video editing and worked as an assistant video editor. And um, I remember I came over one day and, um, and asked him and his roommates if he wanted to help me paint something down in this, the basement. And um, I'm, oh, no, no, I don't want to do it, this and that. But one person did. And long story short, they all came down. And we ended up having about seven people all throwing paint on this big canvas that no one actually knew what was going on. Um, and what underneath it was actually this um, Jim Morrison stencil. And so what happened was that after I removed this stencil, all this splattered paint ended up kind of being all the hair. And it was this kind of very aha moment for both me and him, as far as like it sparked his interest into painting. And for me, it's saying, hey, you know what, I can have someone who's also into it, and we can kind of work together. And so the kind of pop neoism was our kind of term for using this kind of pop mixed with kind of abstract expressionism, and kind of neo is like our new spin on it. So that's kind of a term that we've kind of self-coined, uh, man, six years ago, I think now. So you, I'm, I'm starting to piece all of this together. I, mean, I can't believe we've never had this conversation, but anyway. I know, and it's, I, it's good. funny, I haven't talked about this kind of stuff in a long time, so it's, uh, yeah. I'm trying to like keep it in a sort of linear fashion, because right. even my mind right now is, okay, this and then this and yeah. this and this and, you know. Oh, there's no such thing. Just be scatterbrained. Yeah, pretty it, much. Right? Yeah, pretty yeah, much. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's a good thing for a doctor to be scatterbrained. I think. Yeah. Well, you know, medicine. You you kind of you have your checklist and you go in there and you have to. But when it comes to painting and art and all sorts of the creative process, there really is unlimited paths, unlimited you know ways of doing it. There's no right or wrong way, and um, and so that's kind of what I liked about both the art and the medicine is it's a combination of like two kind of separate fields, but at the same time are together. So Tony, listen, listen to what we've got so far and tell me if this strikes you 
as interesting as well, right? We've got a guy that um, is a painter. He is an astrophotographer, um, a medical doctor. So through college, through med school, um, at the time he's in med school, he's picking up these other hobbies, and he's the type of guy that gets <laughs> gets punished for having the highest GPA. <laughs> I think he had to come to OPT just to be at a place where he wasn't the biggest nerd. <laughs> yeah. well, right? Pretty yeah. much so. I, I am pretty nerdy. I'll yeah. tell you that, you know? So... Yeah, it's it's good. You're, it's, you're in good company. Yeah, here, I haven't right? even showed you my card tricks yet. That was my. Oh, uh, you have yeah. card tricks. I used to really. invent card tricks. Yeah. He's making a balloon animal right now while we're talking. Actually, it's a, it's a, tele- <laughs> it's a, it's a telescope. Yeah. It's a refractor. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but seriously, I want to talk about. Um, I mean, how how when you're going through med school, astrophotography is not simple. I mean, actually, on your own website, one of the first quotes that's on your website is uh, the quoting you saying astrophotography is more difficult than medicine, right? So how do you pick up when you're already doing something incredibly, incredibly difficult? How do you pick up another challenging hobby? And did you mean that? Do you really think that astrophotography is more difficult than medicine? I do. Um, <clears throat> I think that with medicine, um, it's it's difficult in the sense that there's a lot of information to know and memorize, um, uh, which some people are better at it than others. I'm not the best at the pure memorization. Um, however, when it comes to astrophotography, there's so many components that go into it. And there's so many parts that are absolutely frustrating that make you kind of want to like give up or quit. And, um, and so I thought, I mean, to me, it was a much more difficult process to like wrap my head around, to grasp, to keep going forward and to learn, um, than I think actually medicine. And, um, and also like there's a, there's a lot of doctors and obviously a lot of smart people and there's not that many great astrophotographers, in my opinion. So sure. Yeah. That's, well, that's probably true. I'm sure there are more doctors than astrophotographers and the information's probably more easily accessible. Um, but what do you, what do you find challenging about the process of astrophotography specifically? Like what are the hurdles that you feel like this would be what catches a lot of people and stops them? Um, I think that the, well, I think that every step along the way, you run into more and more hurdles. Um, the first step was how do I even, you know, connect a camera to a scope and get a decent photo? Um, and then once you got a decent photo, it was a single shot. And then the next step was, okay, well now how do I, how do I try to get a, you know, shoot a, a longer exposure. Well, then you have to get the, the amount that can track. And then if you want to get the amount that tracks, okay, then you have to figure out how to align it properly. Then you have to be able to set up your camera to be able to, to capture that. Then on top of that, it's then taking that information and then putting it into the various programs, learning the programs and how to manipulate the photos from stacking them to, you know, I do a lot of lunar kind of work. And so using the, um, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> The, like Reggie Stacks and Wave, oh, what's it, the other, I'm blanking right now on the name of it. Uh, and when you say it all like this, you're making me insecure. Like, wow, maybe I maybe I shouldn't do that. That's well, no, and then, <laughs> then you're talking about, I mean, then you get on to like, you know, auto guiding and then shooting in multiple filters and all sorts of things. And so I think it's one of these things that, you know, it's uh, it's easy to take a, a photo, I think, single photo through a scope, but I think it gets exponentially difficult to to, to take deep space imaging and get quality results. And, um, 
but as far as it's just every step of the way is a new challenge. And, uh, and so I think it's, you know, that constant challenge that kept me going mm-hmm. and wanting to learn more. Um, and, uh, I'm a very big person on both learning, both through reading, probably have over a dozen books on various topics on astrophotography and, um, and also a lot of like web, uh, web forums and YouTube videos. Um, and also I think the biggest thing is challenge. I think for most people getting into it is just the, the frustration in not being able to grasp it right away. And, you know, how many times do you have to fail and keep coming back before you succeed? And how many times can you fail and get back up on your feet before someone wants to throw the towel in? And, um, and I've, I've talked to quite a few kind of friends on the, I've met through the, that have kind of gone out and really invested a lot of money and have gotten, you know, big scopes, fancy cameras, very expensive mounts that have kind of like threw the towel in and, uh, and have tried it over and over and over. And then all of a sudden you get all set up and you're, you know, everything is good to go. And then all of a sudden clouds roll over, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. There are a lot of things that are outside your control with astrophotography for sure. And then the things that are within your control can be challenging, but I know this is a point of passion for Tony. Um, and one that I really appreciate about you, Tony, is that, um, it's explaining to people that it doesn't have to be difficult. It doesn't have to be so challenging to do astronomy, both visual and astrophotography. You, you can really do it at whatever, whatever level you choose to, you know? And so I think that the challenge though, I mean, obviously it is challenging. I think that astronomy in general, um, whether you're looking at it scientifically, you know, if you're going into the science of it or just the pretty pictures, like I like to take, I think that it's the challenge that draws intellectuals, right? Intellectuals are always drawn to challenge no matter what it is. I think you take any simple hobby and you're not going to find a lot of people that really feel like they can participate and stay in it and progress long-term. Usually intellectuals are drawn to challenge. Yeah, that's a really that good well. point. I mean, I've I've been accused many times of if given a choice between an easy thing and a hard thing, I'll pick the hard thing because I want to overcome I like the challenge. I want the obstacle. I want to prove that I can do whatever it is that is set before me and it's all about for me earning new skill sets that I didn't maybe have before and to be able to program computers or process images or uh, build build telescope cameras, things like that. These were all these are all very hard things. But in the end, every single time I've done it, I have struggled through it. I have persevered. I have made mistakes. I have broken things. I have started over from scratch. But in the end, you know, I got the skill I was after. I was able to get the camera or the image processor, whatever it was. And it's a, there's no feeling like it. There just isn't. And 100% it's, agree. Yeah. It's, it's so when I, I sense this, I've, I've heard it in Dustin. I'm hearing it in you now. That was certainly true when we talked to some of our other guests uh, earlier in this podcast. There is a sense of drive to overcome any obstacles uh, that, that, are in the way of our learning a passion. And so I think that's, I think that's important, but it's not required. I think that if you're a normal person, just a normal non-driven person who's casually sort of obliquely interested in astrophotography, and you don't know if you're going to like it, if you're introduced to it in a way that is 
as non-threatening as possible. And by that, I mean an easy-to-use telescope, a lightweight telescope that's not heavy and, and, and onerous to set up and use. I think that would get you involved, and you can do it in a gradual way, too. So you don't have to, like, bull in, you know, barrel into it like, uh, like a lot of us people do with passions <laughs> and just, I want to learn it all today. Uh, so it's a, it, it can be a graduated process as well. And I think we all have a tendency to push it even further. It's not, it's not enough to just have it be challenging. We have to create new challenges as well, right? It's like, exactly. Like, I don't want to do astrophotography. I want to do astrophotography from Times Square. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep, exa- yep, exactly. It, it's got to be how far can you push the challenge? You know, I want to do astrophotography from Antarctica, something like that. You know, like I really want to see how how difficult can we make this very difficult thing? Exactly. Well, you get dark skies from Antarctica, at least. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can always sell yourself the benefits. <laughs> but of then anything. the cold, you know, can you, you know. <laughs> A little bit biting, yeah. You know, when we went to, um, to Times Square, you know, just kind of uh, piggybacking off that, it, it's funny because you're like, oh, you'll get dark skies when you go to Antarctica. And that's true because you really do. You sell yourself the benefits of whatever bullshit you're selling to yourself, you know? <laughs> and so true. like when we went to New York, when we were going to Times Square, I remember having that conversation with you, Stephen, where I was like, well, you know, in Times Square, I don't think it'll be hard for us to find power for the telescopes. Like, I think we'll be able to power the telescopes there so we won't have to bring batteries. And it's like, <laughs> you know, see e- let's go let's go do it <laughs> yeah exactly and what's funny is when we got there the hardest thing to do was find an outlet <laughs> yeah yep and yeah. the most like lighted city part of the city ever yeah. you know we could no, not no find power. one yeah we could not find one so it took us a long time to find one and by then i was trying to run block on the counterterrorism unit that was throwing us out but oh god that was uh, funny ian showed me a picture of you guys in times square and behind this uh this terrorist officer uh looking at you guys that was a hilarious photo so steven was uh was in that picture too he was the guy standing next to me that was also you know on trial for uh, much. new york city's counterterrorism unit but let's let's talk about that experience for a second because it was pretty crazy and um i kind of want to know because i remember calling you and telling you like steven i have this idea and it's in your hometown it's right by where you live um like what was going through your head when i was telling you about this Times square thing First of all, I absolutely loved it. The fact of trying to think about <clears throat> bringing a scope to the most light polluted, probably one of the most light polluted parts of the entire world, um, right in the heart of the Big Apple, you know, and um, try to show people that you can not only image, but you could image right through that light pollution and you can see, you know, deep space. Because I'll tell you, in New York, first of all, no one even thinks you can see stars, let alone take photos of stars and or deep space. And, um, which is completely false. You can. And so when he gave this idea, like, I was like, man, like what, I wish I would have thought of that first, you know? <laughs> um, but the, truly the thing of all the things I actually feel like the worst because he was, I remember he called me up and he's like, well, what kind of things do we need? Do we need a permit? Do we need this? I'm like, ah, oh, we don't need anything. There's crazy. Like they got the naked cowboy over there. And he's like, <laughs> even the naked cowgirl, like there's like old lady got her, you know? And I'm like, oh, we don't need anything. And well, turned out we actually did you know something, had but. we done this adventure naked they probably would have just turned their backs to it like they do everything else that's happening in times square and they'd be like oh it's just another naked person There's another yeah square. exactly you know you know no naked astronomy <laughs> but yeah you bring a telescope somewhere and they're sending the, the terrorism unit after you but um yeah so so well, what did they think you of, were doing what did they think you were doing when when they showed up so it was uh 
we had the idea and we planned a lot of things out. I feel like pretty well. It, it was, yes. We even had like, uh, I even like um, contacted a friend who put us in touch with the the local news. We had a, like, the news come out and set up uh, to film us. And um, we had what, eight or nine people out? Yeah, I think it was nine people nine total people. that were there. We flew out six and then another three came. Yep, we had the two guys from Takahashi. Yeah, yeah. Um, my art assistant came out. Actually, my buddy Tripp, um, the painting, he came down to kind of help photograph and kind of yeah. be there in the scene. And um, yeah, I mean, everything was going great. The weather was perfect. Yep. You know, like all the stars were aligning, no pun intended. And then right, I think as things were kind of settling down and we were going to get ready to hook everything up, uh, I get like a little tap and my artist points over and I see Dustin there talking. At, and at first I thought he was talking to these cops like oh yeah you guys want to come take a look and check it <laughs> yeah. out and yeah you know because i mean they just that. stand around the next day go over there and it's you know we uh had <laughs> dustin's trying elite. not to get arrested <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well it was funny man because i knew we were going to run into problems and so we um we even planned out like so we had on different streets we had people bringing in gear and it was as set up as it possibly could be to where it's just like plan it down plug it in get it aligned and start imaging that was the plan and so you've got people like converging in it into a single location with all of this gear at the same time it was it was very organized in that way and so we do that and while everybody's doing that I'm kind of running block on the city. So I'm calling this or I'm talking to the city security. So Times Square has its own security. And then it also has New York police, you know, in the counterterrorism unit that both independently watch it. And um, so I'm telling New York's uh, counterterrorism guys that, hey, I've already talked to the city and the city said this was fine. They said it was fine if we were out here for about an hour. It's no big deal. We're just setting up. We're getting a picture and then we're leaving. And so they're kind of like, OK, well, we're going to make some calls to make sure that's OK. And then I called the city and was like, hey, I talked to the counterterrorism people and they said it was cool if we were here for like an hour and, you know, then we just needed to pack up and get out of here. So no big deal. And they're like, OK, but we need to make some calls and then we're going to check. And so I had this kind of working and it was beautiful for a few minutes. But then they started making their calls and um, and they would come back and say, hey, like so and so doesn't know what you're talking about. Who else do I need to talk to? I'm like, I don't know. I think his name was like Barry. I don't know. And I'm just making <laughs> things up as I go along, you know, and so Barry, the, the city planner. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Manilow. Yeah. I don't know. Call his boss. Call his boss and then call his boss and just keep calling people until somebody says, yeah, I talked to Dustin. And so I'm talking to these people and they keep getting closer and closer. So at first there was like a five minute gap between them coming and talking to me. And then it just started getting to where they was like they were right by each other. And I was like, this is going to fall apart. So I'm telling my team, you know, hurry up. We need to get this thing going. And uh, finally, it came to where they were, you know, that picture you've seen where they're they're right there on top of uh, me and Steven. Yep. And uh and Ian's standing there, and he, <laughs> I didn't remember this until yesterday when he was talking about it in the documentary, but he said that the counterterrorism unit is standing there right over the top of me and Steven, throwing us out. And I look over to Ian, our marketing director, and I'm like, keep setting up, man. I'm going to run block on these guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but we were just trying to get these things set up, and so many people in Times Square were enjoying it. Absolutely. You know, oh, yeah, we had three scopes set up. Um, yeah. We had, um, I brought down um, I, I, a Los Mandy mount. So I had double, um, I had a FS-102 Takahashi and my TSA-120. And then you guys had a 
The 106? Yeah, an yeah. FSQ 106 with a QSI camera on it. And it was a pretty, I mean, it, it was a substantial Yeah, the HQ mount. I brought yeah. my HQ mount. And yeah. oh, yeah, all this gear. And, and oh, yeah, we had people kind of coming down. And at first, people like, they didn't even know, what is this? It's a telescope. Oh, yeah. really? Can I look through it? And and so, because we were going to image on the, the FSQ. Right. And then I had both scopes set up to be visual. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh, yeah, kids coming over and looking down. And. I mean, it was. It seemed like everything from my standpoint was going. So I had no idea that Dustin was already like running block and this and that. And I'm so into like trying to get the. He's trying to keep you out of jail. And, and trying to <laughs> yeah. get like yeah photos because we were right by like literally we we're right in the heart where like the, there's an H and M and then there's this like it's actually the police station. It was closed. They right. just opened up. It had this big huge American flag and it was mm-hmm. this perfect spot that you know. But next thing you know, I look over and oh my gosh. At first, these guys want to look in, and then I'm like, nope, they don't want to look in the scope. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize because there's so many people in Times Square. It's just a sea of people. I didn't realize with all the people there, I never saw the sign that we set up, I mean, 15 yards from the police station. You know, that was probably a pretty poor decision on our part. We could have done a little better. But hey, man, we set up telescopes in Times Square. We're going to be doing it again. We're setting up in major cities. We'll be in LA next week on top of one of the tallest buildings, actually the tallest building there. We're doing all these things to try to bring, you know, astronomy to people instead of saying the creepiest thing you can say ever. And we've talked about this before, but astronomers are creepy by default because you're like, hey, you uh, you want to meet me out in the middle of the desert where no one is? Yeah, when it's completely <laughs> dark and you can't see anything. Like and look that's an uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's an uncomfortable conversation. It's not if you're like, let's meet in Times Square. Come look through a telescope. You know. And so this is going to be in the documentary then, uh, the session in Times Square. Or are you going to film another one? Well, so in the documentary, um, I'm gonna we're gonna touch base and talk about this, and then. It's going to be one of these kind of hopefully ongoing, like planning and getting it done and accomplishing it. So, because anytime you make a film, um, you know, you want to have something that's both interesting and a challenge and something that is kind of like, uh, you know, a goal working towards. And, you know, coming out and interviewing all these people is great, but I still wanted to have something that like a goal to go towards, you know, give a little bit of suspense. And the truth is, is, I mean, we haven't done it yet. We're still, we're working on it. We're trying to get there. Even if we got to do it again, rogue, mm-hmm. but it's just something that the film can kind of like, as the film progresses and you're meeting in these other astrophotographers, slowly we're trying to get this Times Square shoot again, because if you can, especially now with the, the triad filter, right. I mean, imagine like you're going in Times Square, New York, which pretty much like Everyone knows Times Square. That's all they think about. You go to New York. Did you see the Statue of Liberty? And did you go to Times Square? And then from there, to actually be able to shoot an image deep space, I mean, it's just a completely eye-opening experience for not only would be us, but anyone who would even consider like, wow, I'm telling you, people don't even think you can see stars in New York. And I know we've talked about this before, Dustin, but I want to mention again about this triad filter. This is a filter that you guys have developed that has three, it's called a triad because it's got three band passes that I think are about three nanometers apart. And they're centered on wavelengths that are ideally suited for astrophotography at with different objects, correct? Do I have that right? Yes. So, um, yeah. So what happens is, you know, when you shoot monochrome, 
um, you, you know, you shoot, uh, hydrogen, sulfur, and oxygen. Typically that's what people are shooting for narrowband. And then you just kind of, uh, set each one to a color because two of those are in red and then the other one's in like bluish green. Um, but you set each one to a color and that gives you your red, green, and blue. And so what we did was we took a single filter and put three separate passes on one. And now we actually have one that we just released this week called the triad ultra filter. And what they well, are of is course. super <laughs> narrow band. Yeah. Super <laughs> narrow, narrow band filters with multiple band passes. And when we say narrow, I mean, I'm talking about all the way down to like three nanometers, which as you know, Tony, that's, that's Hubble narrow. Yes, that's what yes. the Hubble space telescope uses. Okay. So, so I'm sorry. I, I must have had that wrong then. The, the non ultra triad is not three nanometers okay no 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 it's not so so it's a lot wider and the idea being that you know we wanted we wanted it to be able to be used on a little bit faster telescopes the narrower you go the slower the scope has to be to be effective um so we opened up the band passes a little plus it made it a lot less expensive i mean there's a the manufacturing process for getting something down to three nanometers is very expensive and very fragile Right. I you know, yeah. I mean, can you give people an idea, Tony? You're, you're better at describing these types of things than I am, making them s- simple to understand of how narrow three nanometers actually is. Well, it's uh, a nanometer is ten to the minus nine meters, and um, a micron is uh, ten to the minus six. And so, if you look at your a human hair is about ten microns, so ten. Uh, times uh, 10 to the sixth. And we're talking a, a three orders of magnitude smaller than that. So 10 to the minus nine. And that would be, I, I don't know, there's not a physical thing I can point to that, do, that can tell you what that is. But th- we're talking very narrow ranges of photons here. Yeah, I mean, it would, it would make a human hair compared to that be, I mean, massive, right? Like mm-hmm. that's, how, that's how much smaller it would be than a human hair. Yeah. Can't even imagine. Yeah, it's like- yeah. It's so unbelievably just ridiculously small and narrow, but that's why it only lets in a very specific wavelength. And as long as we use the wavelengths that aren't coming off the majority of street lamps or car lights or anything like that, then that stuff can go right by and the filter cuts it all out. You know, and so that's the benefit is like when we're, we're using, say, hydrogen alpha, we know, OK, these lights aren't putting off anything in the wavelength of hydrogen alpha. So let's really make it narrow and cut all of that out and just shoot right past that street light. Now, these these are not this is not a visual filter, is it? This isn't something you could screw onto your eyepiece and look through. You know, it, so the answer this is, is designed yes, for photographs, like I guess. You, it is for photographs. But the reason being, because it's so narrow it's cutting out almost all of the light coming through. So, you know, your eye's only going to do an exposure of what, one sixtieth of a second, roughly. Yeah, about that. So, yeah, so a sixtieth of a second. It's not that it wouldn't work visually. The problem is you can't do a long exposure with your eyeball unless right. you've really been practicing. Yeah. It'd just be too yeah. damn, too, too few photons, I think, for your for your eyes. Yeah, yeah. I think it would just, it would just, yeah, exactly. It would filter out way too much of the light for your eyes to be able to pick it up, what's left. Okay, well, I, I love talking about that filter. Now the Ultra is out, so I I I, I want to check that out as well. Yeah, we're we're going to send you one actually to to play with. We we were just talking about that. Yeah, it's I a fun it's a fun filter. Can't wait. That'll be awesome. Okay, so the the documentary then, uh, Stephen, can you give us a sense of where you are in the production of it uh, right now? Have you done any of the stories of the people yet? Or are you just getting started? Where are you in production? 
So this is the first major shoot for the capturing the stories of the astrophotographers. Um, the only story that I actually went out and shot was um, actually went out to the Flat Earth International Conference in Denver about, this was in November, November 15th. Right. Um, and so because there's a whole new movement with these uh, people that believe that the earth is flat. And so um, I'm not a flat earther. Um, but to for the film, I was like, you know, first of all, if you're going to make a documentary on anything and you want people to watch it, it has to be interesting. And I mean, as much as we love scopes, and I know Dustin and I could literally talk scopes until like we can't even, you know, literally stand up anymore. But to the average person, like there's only so much of just a pure scope. And so in the film, I'm thinking, you know, how can we, you know, I already have the idea of let's go, you know, if we're going to shoot this, I'm going to interview a bunch of different astrophotographers. The premise is going to be, you asked before, it's only going to be the, you know, like the best or what's the criteria. And actually, like I said before, there is no real major criteria, um, but I do have, I want to capture people that are from the very beginners getting into it and like what it's done for them all the way to people like Dustin who are, you know, um, you know, probably some of the best in the world. Um, with that, I'm going to swing in a social media aspect with the the Instagram to be more specific because that's how I met Dustin. That's how I've met a lot of these astrophotographers. And when I got into the, the field, there was no one in New York city that at least at the time that I knew that was really imaging and and so I had to turn on to social media and find out. And I found these people and they're all around the world. And everyone was so nice and so friendly. And it's a very helpful community. And, you know, from advice on equipment, on imaging processing, all sorts of things like that. And so that's one aspect. And then I'm thinking, okay, if you get any kind of film, you have to have something that kind of throw the wrench in the gears, you know, kind of turn it upside down. And so my take on it is like, you know, now we have this, you know, this explosion in technology that allows us to image deep space for a relatively inexpensive price compared to where it was like 5, 10, 15 years ago. But then all of a sudden, as this whole thing of technology, and we're imaging these distant galaxies and, you know, getting amazing planetary footage. At the same time, there's this whole new movement now completely reverting to thinking that the Earth is now flat. <laughs> and so it kind of like you know, it gives a whole new spin in a sense on this kind of little subject, like, like I said, a little wrench in the gears. Um, and so I went out there and, and also, you know, from uh, just a pure science, you know, like, like, what is there, you know, what do they have to say? Because I feel that, you know, a lot of people, and not just with flat earth, but a lot of these kind of out there conspiracy people just in a sense, kind of blow it off. And I thought just from my own personal experience, it'd be great to go out there and see what they have to say. And, you know, is it, legitimate is it crazy like who are these people and i mean there is a full spectrum of uh i wouldn't quite say craziness but in a sense you can with people at, at this conference but it was enjoyable i went there met some interesting people um and uh well most likely it will probably make its way in the film um it's something that if i get into the editing room at the very end of the day and feel like you know what like it doesn't really advance the story and it it doesn't quite fit how i envision it I'm going to cut it out. And it's quite funny because I've learned that through my painting and my recent short film that sometimes that things you go into, um, 
you have one idea and it things turn out to be completely different. And I'll give you an example. The amount of paintings that I made that I thought that this was such an awesome painting, this is going to be the one that they're going to come to the show that they're going to love that people are going to it's going to fly off the wall. No, eh, it's okay. No one ever touches it. It's the ones that I've had paintings that literally I thought they were such garbage. I wanted to like throw them out. This they sold before the show. And so it's like the same thing, even with the film, it's the scenes that you think it's going to be such a great scene and then end up turning out, I completely cut it. And it's like this one other take I thought that I'd never use in like a pinnacle in the film. And so, you know, um, it's kind of in a sense covering your bases. Um, the one thing with the documentary going into it is it's unplanned. I mean, it's planned as far as I'm coming out here and I'm filming, but you know, you're going into people's lives, you're traveling to new places. Um, and there's only so much in your, you're trying to tell a story based off fact, you know, you, you're not, can't really make things up. Otherwise you, you know, challenge your credibility, which I want to be a credible person. And so, um, so yeah, so that's kind of like one of the aspects that, um, the first thing I've shot, but technically coming to OPT, which we got out here Wednesday, yesterday was a full day. I swear. I feel like even me and my crew, we feel like we've been here for a week already. Um, and, uh, just from shooting interviews yesterday, went up to the remote observatory, um, which was fantastic. I'd actually never been both to a remote observatory or his. And, uh, I mean, I think for both my crew guys, probably the most amount of stars I've ever seen in their life and pretty much myself as well. Mm -hmm. So, so it sounds like, uh, you're going to be taking the approach that the journey towards the astrophotography hobby and the wonder and getting underneath the night sky and taking these amazing pictures of the universe is a personal story. It's a, it's a personal journey. And you're going to try and tell that story uh, from whomever you meet. Yes. And, uh, throughout the documentary. So, um, cause there's a couple of different ways. Um, cause one is that I've never made a documentary. And so, and getting into anything, you know, um, you know, you, you do all your research, you read, you study, and there's a lot of different ways that you can tell that documentaries are shot. There's some that are just pure, all historic with the narrator. There's some that are, you know, it'll be Ken Burns, the Ken Burns kind yep, of style. Yep, that, exactly. That, then you have, yeah. um, like the Michael Moore style where he is a character telling a story, but he's also kind of involved. You then have the mm -hmm. kind of storytelling, which is like the, uh, supersize me where he is the entire story. It's an experiment on him. Um, and then you also have the ones that are kind of like the fly on the wall where they just kind of go and observe and, you know, it plays out how it is. And so in thinking about this whole, like, what's the best way I can tell that? And, and actually I found, I want well, at least I think the best way is that is I came into this as a complete beginner and it took over me, you know, from getting one scope to, I think the most I had at one time, my collection was 12. <laughs> I started to shed the herd a little bit. Oh, that's, that's a common I'm affliction. Telling you, yeah. you'll, ha you'll have to see this photo. It's actually on like one of my business cards. Like my girlfriend, like went out of town on a, a business trip. And so I basically pulled all my scopes in the bed with me. And like, there's like eight of them and I got this photo. I yeah. saw that photo. That's on yeah, your website. Yeah. So, That's on your website. And so, um, <laughs> as you can see, I mean, it became, and so from my standpoint, I thought it'd be a great way to, to kind of shoot the film in, in I'm going to narrate it. And this way I can, um, both be a part of it and go out and, meet these other astrophotographers um, who I haven't met that I've only been in touch with and friends on the social media um, and also kind of allows me to further explore and kind of 
find out what makes them tick and, you know, get their stories and, and, and kind of get dive down into their world. And from that can come back and show the people. And also it kind of will help in the storytelling process because, you know, it, yeah, I can also bring the audience up to speed very quickly by giving them a quick little backstory or whatnot, rather than having to show 30 minutes of footage just to say, you know, this is a remote observatory or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, well, once you've gathered these stories and you finish the documentary, I guess what I would like to know is where do you go from there? I mean, do you have to sell it to somebody to get distributed? I mean, where can we then go to see this once it's complete? So um, there's a couple different ways. Um, One, and most likely is going to do is the edit it and then start submitting to various film festivals. Um, And there's a lot of film festivals all around the world. And there's a lot for documentaries. And so through the festivals, that's where distributors come, people who work for production companies and whatnot. And um, if they like it, they can ask to purchase it. Also um, through this can reach out directly to various kind of uh, production like now, you know, Amazon, Netflix, uh, PBS, BBC, anything like this. And so the way I'm kind of shooting it is making sure that I'm doing also all the legal aspect that they'll want to acquire it because a lot of the big things and hurdles is, you know, just simple things like having the talent releases, location releases, this and that. Everyone's worried about being sued nowadays and all sorts of kind of crazy stuff. I mean, from my standpoint, I don't personally care, but if you want to get this film other than being put on like YouTube, um, you have to kind of go through these steps. And ideally I want to shoot it in a way and make a good enough film that it could be on a mass distribution because at the end of the day, I'm here to tell this story and these people's stories to inspire others to, to look up, to get a scope, to, if they have a scope, put a camera to it, you know? And so, and from what it's done, I mean, for me, look at what it's done for Dustin and Jenny here at OPT from, you know, packing up all their stuff, selling what they didn't want, coming out to Oceanside. And and now, I mean, setting up remote observatories all around the world, creating the triad filter, you know. And so obviously it's had a big effect on their lives. And and after even talking to a lot of these people just through, I've been friends with on social media, it's changed their lives immensely. And, mm. um, yeah. and so to kind of take that passion, you know, what makes you want to, drive three hours out in the desert and stay up all night till the sun comes up and freezing cold weather. And, but the, what it does for your, you know, uh, psyche, the passion, everything, it's just, it's palpable and people get excited about that. And also there's a lot of stuff, a lot of documentaries and a lot of film stuff on space. People love astronomy, people love deep space, but there's nothing that's really been done on astrophotography specifically. And so I, this is kind of like, uh, it's tough to come up with new concepts, not that astrophotography is a new concept, but, um, at least from my standpoint, I don't think anyone's ever made any kind of film that covers this specific subject. So I've, I've definitely never seen one. Have you? The closest this comes is, uh, to a PBS series they made called the astronomers and the very first episode featured amateur astronomy. And they did a segment on John Dobson. And his inv- his invention of the Dobsonian and this uh, the California or San Francisco sidewalk astronomers, that's the closest it comes. But it it wasn't about astrophotography; it was about amateur astronomy more generally. And that's the closest I've heard of anything being done like this. And this was back in the early nineties, wow, yeah. so it was quite a long time ago. Oh, and the other the other one person, um, <clears throat> I just went up to uh, kind of meet and greet and in. in um, 
learn all their story and meet them was actually Al Nagler from Teleview, um, kind of the grandfather of optics. Super, super cool oh, guy. Yeah. I know his son was just- We've talked to yep, his son yep. on this. Actually, it's funny yeah. because I was talking with them and they were like literally, I think about a week later, his son was coming out. And so I was in their office and he actually, I met him. I came home from, uh, I was traveling for work with OBGYN, came home and I had about a day and then I was actually going to take a little, take my mom on a, a vacation. And that day happened to be a star party in Central Park. And so I was like, I got to go down there and like drag my mom up there with my camera. And we were shooting and actually Al happened to be there. And I, I never met him before. And I actually never considered to, um, you know, interview him or have him in the film, but we ended up meeting and seemed like such a cool guy and so nice and open. And I was like, you know what, like it'd be another great aspect. Cause I mean, the guys really kind of also revolutionized the industry with great optics. And I mean, Teleview is, is just, you know, there it's, it's a name and staple that any astronomer or astrophotographer knows. So it's, um, I know he's excited to kind of be a part of it. And, um, but also one thing going into a doc is that, you know, um, you kind of, you have an idea of where you're going, but as things kind of come up and pop up, you know, you have to be willing to be flexible and kind of, take that curve. Cause at the end of the day, the most important thing is the story you tell. There's a lot of compelling stories, but you have to figure out the one that's right for the film, the one that's the best for the audience. And, um, like I said, with documentary filmmaking, it's a total adventure and you kind of never know who you're going to get into or meet. Like today, Travis Burke came in, got to meet him for the first time. He yes. was on a podcast here with us actually. Yeah. Super cool. He told great stories of going out into these national parks and at in, in the middle of the night and watching the being in the opposite end of the traffic when they're when they're all leaving the park to take their selfies. Uh, he's coming yep, in. Yeah, he was telling us the same story. I mean, I'm telling you, I was getting goosebumps <laughs> listening to this guy and and everything he had done. And I mean, I I I known of him from the just the Instagram and like amazing photographer and 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 so what a treat. I never expected to come here and to meet him and be interviewing him. And I'm here sitting like, man, like listen, to this guy's story is just like even inspiring me, you know? Yeah, so. absolutely. And it, it, it's amazing how that works, but being surrounded by people like that, it's hard to ever stop, you know? Yes. Uh, it, I feel like I'm busy all the time, but it's, you know, it's, I'm always talking to people like you, Tony or Steven or, or Travis, mm -hmm. or, you know, I feel like, Wait till you meet Kat yeah, Mason uh, if you yeah. haven't. <laughs> I, I've heard, I've heard awesome. amazing yeah, things and <laughs> great, great work. I'm telling you, it's uh, she's yeah, something. for sure. Well, look, I know that we're just about out of time, but um, I I heard a a funny word that I didn't I'd never heard of in astronomy before from Stephen yesterday. So this week we're gonna do an astronomy vocabulary word oh. of the week. And I want to know if you know what this is, Tony. I'd never. I need theme uh, yeah. music. Dun, dun, I had dun. never heard this before. Have you ever heard of a scope widow? A scope widow? Yeah. No, I have never St heard of that. Stephen, what's, what's a scope widow? So, I can guess what it is. What would you guess? I would guess that it's a uh, spouse that has been lost to the uh, hobby of amateur. <laughs> yes, astronomy. there it is. Exactly. <laughs> there it is. And apparently, there are a lot of them. Yeah. So it's um, <laughs> it was funny because I was, you know, when I first got into astronomy, it was visual, and then I started to like read more on these forums and who are these people that take photos? And then some of these guys were like, "I only do astrophotography," and I'm like, "How can you own a scope and only take photos? You don't even look through it." And then these guys are talking about how 
you know, that they've had girlfriends and actually like a few have had wives that have left them because they've spent so much time out there, you know, shooting and observing. And then about, and I was like joking my girlfriend, cause like, she's pretty cool. Like she's like, as long as she doesn't care, she's like, if you don't care if I go to bed, I'm like, not at all. You don't care. I'm out here all night. She's like, no, not one bit. And we were in New York and we were in Lincoln center walking back from uh, dinner. And I saw a couple guys looking through scopes and one of the guys had an FS-102. And I'm like, oh, my God, another guy with a Takahashi. I didn't even know anyone in New York had a scope. And so I'm going over to talk to him. And um, so I go, I go, well, what do you, does your you know, wife cause, uh, come out here, a girlfriend? He goes, well, I had one, but I, well, I was looking through the scope too much. She finally left me. And I'm like, oh, my God, it is a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, I, Dustin doesn't. Dustin has a nice partnership. It sounds like with they've got a he's got a kindred spirit who also shares his passion. But that is a rare. Th- it can be a rare thing. So it's yeah, uh, yeah. I have, I have. I mean, I have met people with that affliction. Yeah. Well, it's kind of it's just a given <laughs> with me, you know, that like I'm going to if it's clear, I'm going to be imaging pretty much all the time. But, um, you know, photography is definitely my passion and astrophotography specifically is pretty much what I do. And if I'm not doing it, I'm, I'm building another system for another project or something like that. But uh, no, I absolutely love it. But anyway, I think that we're we're running out of time here. Yeah, running out of time, but I just want to ask Stephen real quick. Do you have a title yet for your for your film or is it too um, early? So I do. So for the documentation, um, it's just Astro Documentary. However, the title that I am, I like is actually called Space Chasers. Um, it's actually funny be- Ooh, because like it's, a, it's a title that popped into my head before I even really put thought into actually shooting it. Um, and I kind of liked it because we all kind of travel and kind of chasing, chasing the, chasing the space, you know, we're trying to shoot deeper, better images, this and that. And also the fact that there's astrophotographers all around the world and, uh, we're all kind of chasing the same thing. So I thought that was kind of a catchy, catchy title. So that's kind of what I'm going with now. And, um, most likely what the film will be unless something kind of crazy comes up, but yeah. Oh, I love it. It's, don't stay with Astro. No, yeah. That's just, that's just for the, that's just for the paperwork. So, <laughs> well, great. Okay. Well, yes, we will call it there that, that we are out of time. I want to thank our guest, uh, St- Dr. Steven Swancoat, a, a, the, the buckaroo bonsai of chasing space. And n- now they're, now they're all going to look that up now and, and, and see what right. I'm talking about. Well, thanks about. for having me. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> and like I said, a first of, uh, first row podcast. So it was a great time. Yeah, it's been great having you here. Good luck on your documentary. I know you'll get some great stories. I'm interested to see how you how you weave in the the flat Earth people on this one. This will be interesting, but I'm sure it'll be uh, I'm sure it'll be you know part of the overall narrative. So I can't wait to see what you come up with. Any idea how long this is going to take? Yeah. So or is it just no? Nope, so um, I want to shoot most all the film um, over the next this upcoming year. Um, and most of the people that I've contacted and reached out are going to be, um, April, May, June, July, August, as far as the travel for the film. Um, and then I want to really start kind of cutting and editing it at the end of the year and then early 2020 and have it ready then. So, cause otherwise, I mean, you can, you can shoot a doc for 20 years if you, you know, if you don't really plan it out. So yeah. I'd rather, I'd rather get it done and get it out there for people to see. Yeah, I heard a story. Orson Welles did that with one of his films. It was like uh, he was still making it when he died. So yeah, don't yeah. do that. Uh, well, hopefully, hopefully we can uh, we can get it sooner. So that, what that means though is that you're going to need to come back and give us some more updates. Absolutely, hundred percent. So, so. <laughs> all right. 
right. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for taking time out to talk with us. On behalf of Dustin Gibson, I want to thank all of you for listening to our podcast. We'll see you next time. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk was produced by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California, in partnership with Deep Astronomy. Please send feedback and questions to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.